Welcome to episode 19 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a pint or sometimes several. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Craft Beer Cellar is a family of retail craft beer stores focused on amazing beer, hospitality, and education with 25 locations in 11 states across the country. Visit craftbeercellar.com for a location near you. And keep listening for an opportunity to win free beer from Craft Beer Cellar. And Brian, how can they do that? Mm, I'm glad you asked, Tina. <laughs> you can win that free beer by joining our conversation. You can follow us on Twitter, at uh, PubTheology, and make your comments using hashtag PTLive. And on Facebook, you can comment at facebook.com slash PubTheology. You can comment anytime during tonight's episode, or if you're listening later to the podcast uh, during the week, uh, you may also comment there. And I believe we're announcing this month's winner uh, next week. So our yeah. episode 20, you will hear if you are the winner. You can watch us live Tuesdays 9 o'clock at pubtheology.com or you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Tonight, yes. Brian, since I think we're cutting ourselves a week short, can the people still comment next week? Can we still count the tweets from next week's show that like we'll announce it in the end? We'll do a quick collaboration. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> if you're commenting during, good point. If you're commenting during next week's episode and it's a good one, you you might win the beer. So keep listening. And tonight, I mean, you lose your spot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Carry on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> tonight we discuss bicycles, Bibles, and pitchforks. We discuss whether the spiritual life is like riding a bicycle and whether motion is necessary for growth. We also discuss the assertion that the Bible is not the center of the Christian faith and whether or not Christianity can survive without the doctrine of hell. In other words, we're getting into some good stuff tonight. Uh, well, uh, my name is Brian Burkoff. I'm pastor and author of the book Pub Theology, Beer Conversation, and God. I am in Holland, Michigan, and tonight I am enjoying a darker-than-your-soul stout from Saugatuck <laughs> Brewing. Uh, is perhaps, that really what it's called? Perhaps aptly named for tonight's topic, darker-than-your-soul. <laughs> awesome. And with us, as usual, is Tina Simmons. Welcome, Tina. All right. Um, I'm drinking, uh, it's called Battle Axe. It's a Malbec, and um, it's a 2013. It's pretty good. Excellent, excellent. And I'm excited that we are joined tonight by Tim Van Heitzma, friend, skeptic, and pub theology regular here in Holland. Welcome, Tim. You bet. And, uh, yeah, tonight I'll be drinking uh, Founders All Day, All Day IPA, so, or all night as the case may be. <laughs> exactly, yes, exactly. I have a backup on hand. <laughs> uh, well, we were just talking about uh, in the pre-show about uh, what brings you to us, Tim. Uh, feel free to just uh, tell us uh, maybe how you heard about pub theology and sort of what your interest in uh, a conversation like this might be. Oh, boy. Um, I saw a flyer. And uh, pub theology was something, you know, sounded interesting. I hadn't read the book or really heard about it. Although after seeing the flyer, I did do web searches and found you that way. <clears throat> but I showed up to the group, um, enjoyed what was going on there. Keeps me in touch with the faith community in the area, even though I'm not, you know, actively involved or, or a believer. But I find the topics fascinating as a human endeavor. Um, so, you know, and yeah, it's a great group. So. Thanks Absolutely, for and you uh, you sort of facilitate uh, another local gathering called Skeptics in the Pub. Is that right? Yes, I do. A, yeah, uh, by month or once a month, uh, Skeptics in the Pub. Those also happen all over the place, but uh, this one's affiliated with the Center for Inquiry, which has uh, their Michigan chapters headquartered out of Grand Rapids, that I'm involved in too. So excellent. And uh, what what night do you meet, and where? Uh, we meet at uh, New Holland Brewing Company on the fourth Tuesday of every month. So I believe next week is going to be pub theology. All right, a skeptics in the pub. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, it worked out uh, that tonight you could join us. Perfect. Tim, that's really interesting. I've never heard of that before. So what what kind of topics do you discuss? 
we, our group, and they're very different. Um, they started in England, actually, the idea of skeptics in the pub. Um, but the group that we do is really strictly a social group in Holland, so it's a mm -hmm. chance for skeptics to get together. We usually end up talking about whatever's on anyone's mind. There's no set. You know, with pub theology, there's a really nice question-based structure that, you know, promotes great discussion. Um, ours is more of a social gathering just for a chance for people that are, I guess, you know, in a minority community in a way in the Holland, Zealand area to be able to kind of flock together and let your hair down and just talk about whatever's on your mind. Cool. So that's more the structure for that. Excellent. Nice. Well, our, uh, our first question tonight is, which part of a triathlon would give you the most trouble? Would it be the running, the biking, or the swimming? Tim, I'll let you go first. <laughs> I'm going to use my answer I used last night at Pub Theology for this one just because swimming, because if you fail at that, you drown, whereas the other one <laughs> <laughs> I might point. have to rethink my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's the rationalist in me that came up with that one. So, <laughs> What's the uh, that happened is always the first filter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the, what's the worst case scenario, you know? I don't know. I was going to say the running part because I really don't like to run, but I, I definitely see your point. <laughs> How about you, Brian? Would you skip the that, swimming? <laughs> that, that, that harkens back to uh, Ogan's, uh, would you rather be on a beach or on the boat? And he wanted to be on the beach because you're not going to drown on the yeah, sand. Yeah, Tim would have picked the beach too. I would have. I'm not a big boat fan. I mean, they're okay, but. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah, for me, uh, da, da, da. which would give me the most trouble? Well, probably whichever one comes last because I'd just be wiped out because I'm not in the best shape. Uh, so I, if that's running, that might be the worst because I'd be walking <laughs> at that point. Uh, but I definitely see the point about swimming and it can also be dangerous because there's a lot of people in a tight space who are flailing their feet violently and they're not too worried about where your face is. Um, so I think the chance of either being kicked or kicking someone is pretty high, whereas I think running and biking, there's a little less chance of just running into people. It, it, that's probably exactly why I would not do a triathlon. There, I, There's very few scenarios in the infinite possibilities of me ever doing one. <laughs> and you said you said running uh, would be your least favorite, Tina? Yeah, you know, I like biking, I like swimming. Um, I'm not a super athlete that I'd be competing for first if I did a triathlon, but yeah, running just, I've never gotten into running, I don't know why, and I walk every day, like I'm a speed walker, but I don't know, I don't know why it bugs me. Um, but I, Brian, Brian, you crack me up though because you write these questions and then you sit here and think about what your answer is. <laughs> like you've had days. <laughs> hey, just because I wrote the question doesn't mean I have any any idea what the answer should be. <laughs> <laughs> you think I'd like do some work ahead of time and and so forth. You like to surprise yourself. <laughs> I like to surprise myself exactly. A reacts impromptu. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So. Um, what part would you most enjoy of those three options, uh, Tim? Not two left. <laughs> probably the biking. Yeah. Not a big running fan either. But And swimming I can do. I just don't like doing it as a competitive race kind of thing. Whereas biking I can at least do it. And I've done more of that than either of the other two. Yeah. So. Yeah, me too. Tina, same answer. Same answer. I think that's a three for three for the bicycling. I would definitely uh, enjoy the bicycling the most, um, probably because, yeah, I'm better at it, and uh, I'm not going to drown on a bike. Unless you really do it badly. <laughs> if you do it really poorly, you could maybe pull that off. Oh, my goodness. Well, that moves us uh, naturally into our next uh question, which is a quote uh, from Brian McLaren, the uh, writer and pastor. He says, you can't steer a bicycle unless it's moving. Perhaps similarly, the spirit can't guide us unless we're on a quest. Or better said, perhaps we're unguidable unless we're searching for something more, something beyond, something better. Uh, 
So wondering what you think about this analogy of riding a bike to sort of uh, personal growth, whether that's spiritual growth or just sort of uh, personal um, growth morally, ethically, and so on. I, I, I love this quote, um, and I completely agree with it. I think there's a different energy um, to being stagnant and moving in a direction. Um, me, me personally, I've, I've had a rough couple of years, and I got to the point where I wasn't really sure what I was doing, and I was just recently was like, you know what? I'm going to pick the direction that feels right to me, and if the universe doesn't want me going in that direction, it will redirect me. Um, so I, I completely buy into that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, like I said, it's just a different energy. You know, if you're stagnant, it's harder to push you and get you moving than to just kind of guide you, you know, if you're on, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, what do you think, Tim? Is, uh, is being in motion sort of a, a natural or even needed thing for growth? My, my, I'm not sure. Uh, my guess, but I think everyone's always in motion one way or another, even not moving is motion in some ways. Um, sure. You know, whether you take nudges or not, I don't know. This is one of the questions I have a hard time with, so it's just one of those I don't have a lot of comment on this one, I guess. But... No, it makes sense that, you know, stagnation is never good for anyone. Yeah, and I think, oh, go ahead, Tina. Well, I was just going to say, so, because um, you're an atheist, you kind of alluded to that earlier, um, so the part that bothers you is that something's guiding you? Uh, no, I mean, well, yes, but that, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I just, for me, it's just one of those, this seems to be a, a, a deepity in a way of one of those things that sounds profound, but if you really think about it too much, it probably isn't terribly profound. It's a Daniel Dennett saying is the deepity. <laughs> yeah, right. I understand that. Yep, something that, well, that sounds like really profound, but is it actually if you press right. it a little? Um, and I, I mean, I could see that it could be read that way, um, and I get that. I think for me, I, I kind of fall along the lines of where Tina was that for me it speaks to a, an unwillingness to sort of be settled or to feel like you've arrived um, in terms of um, your beliefs, um, your personal, um, yeah, where you are in life. Uh, and so that could be your spiritual life, certainly. Uh, and I think, I think I grew up in a tradition where uh, there was a lot of feeling like we've already arrived and so there wasn't a need to seek out um, further truth or um, or further depths in our um, in our life with God and I've found that the more I'm seeking the more I'm asking questions the more I'm reading things that challenge me mm -hmm. the more I'm growing and so that's what, one of the reasons I love pub theology frankly is because it puts me in that place I feel like where I'm hearing different voices and even though I may not agree with all of those voices, they're making me think, making me reassess what is it I, I think and why do I agree with this person or why do I disagree with this person. And, and all of those things, I think, help nudge me down the path. So I like the idea of motion as it relates to growth. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that gives you a stronger, yeah. healthier conviction in your belief, too, when, when you have the right to question it. Um, and check out other perspectives and be sure that what you believe is really what you want to believe. But it's something Tim said that I, I really liked was um, when he said that even when you're not in motion, you're in motion. I, truly, I, I agree with that because I think your comfort zone, like you said, you know, everybody thought they had it figured out, they stopped. But I, I think your comfort zone is either growing or shrinking. And I think that goes for a lot of things in life. So like, if you're not out exploring and looking at things, you think you're stagnant. You think that your life is in this little box, but it's actually shrinking. And I've, I've seen that happen to so many people where, like, what you're comfortable with gets smaller and smaller. Like, it, it's just organic. It grows and shrinks. It's never just stagnant. The world keeps moving. So if you're standing still, you're actually falling behind. The Red Queen effect. So a term from science, is, uh, and it references uh, Alice in Wonderland. This, they call it the Red Queen effect. Uh, and I also want to land the line is um, <clears throat> uh, the world is moving faster and faster, and unless I run, I'll never keep up. And you know, nice. But 
Yeah, yeah uh, there you go. There you now, go. How does, how does this idea, though, interface with sort of the Eastern religion idea of contentment? I mean, and monastic traditions also, even within Christianity, you know, contentment is one of the major goals of the faith um, and the key to personal success. And it kind of clashes in some ways with what he's saying. I, what do you guys think of that? That's a great question, uh, and I've I've wondered about, wondered about that myself. Uh, I like to think that there is a goal of uh, a goal of contentment in terms of I I've done my part. I'm looking within, not without, for satisfaction. I'm not comparing myself all the time to others, um, but I also so I think in that sense. Contentment is a virtue, and, and finding this place of um, where I'm not always striving to be where someone else wants me to be. But then I also think there has to be a bit of discontent, in the sense that I don't want to think I've arrived or that growth is over for me. And so I want to be in that place where not not that I'm discontent in a negative way or in a sort of really depressed or sad about my life, but discontent in a way that I'm hungry to grow and to learn and, and to experience more, and I'm content at whatever rate that comes, if that makes sense. Uh, what do you think, Tina? Yeah, I, I agree with you, um, and I, I think you can, you can enjoy your life and be in, you know, enjoy the moments of your life, but still be open to the possibility of more coming your way. Um, or different coming your way. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's tweeted out our growth and contentment at odds. So we'll see if we get to any, uh, any feedback on that one. So, um, what has been either of your experiences uh, in a church setting? Um, and I'm, perhaps I'm more connected to that uh, than either of you at the moment, but at various points of your life, do you feel that uh, your experience in a church community fostered space for growth, growth or motion, or did they hinder that? Depends on the church. I mean, when I, sorry, Brian, when I went to a UCC church, I grew up in an EC church, and then I went to a UCC church as an adult, um, and I felt like both of them kind of hindered I, I can't even say that. The EC, I felt like it hindered because they really couldn't answer my questions, um, didn't seem to appreciate my questions. But <laughs> the UCC, I think they um, they were a little more open-minded and they brought um, the spirituality of, uh, of Christianity more to me, you know, like that more heartfelt connection, and they made it more um, modern. You know what I mean? Like they made it that it made sense in the modern world, but it wasn't until the uh, I found the Unity Church that I felt like it was encouraging me to grow. If that makes sense, encouraging me to question and you know. Yeah, good, good. What about you, Tim? Um, I've been out of it for a long time, but I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church of you know the 1970s and you know early 80s yeah. uh, when I was, you know, elementary, middle school, high school. And um, I don't know, I guess yes and no. I mean, the Christian Reformed Church has a reputation, at least a side of the coin that they are, that says, um, you know, they're academically minded, they're, you know, scholarly, they're thoughtful, they enjoy theological debate. Um, you know, and then there's the other side of that same church, which tends to be pretty exclusionary and pretty rigid. Um, so, you know, up to a point, and as long as you did it with the right people, it could be really interesting, but there were definitely boundary lines that had to be established, and you weren't allowed to quest beyond. Right, right. That was my experience, too, uh, growing up in the same tradition, was that there was this sort of um, thoughtful academic side of things but it was always within a very uh, defined set of boundaries and any exploration or wondering outside of those boundaries was seen as off limits. I think verboten is the word you're looking for. Verboten. <laughs> exactly. Bring in a little Dutch. Perfect. Exactly right. So our next question is uh, a quote from Peter Enns, and he is a New Testament uh, scholar, and he asserts that the Bible is not 
never has been and never will be the center of the Christian faith. So wondering thoughts about that. Uh, do you agree with that? And if, if that if the Bible isn't the center, what is? I know a lot of people that would disagree with that statement. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, I, me too. Yeah, I mean, I I personally think isn't the whole point of Christianity to keep Jesus in the center. However, if the only text we really have about Jesus is the Bible, I can see how that gets misconstrued. You know what I mean? Yeah, but is it, about, is it about the text of Jesus, or is it about the, I guess, ideal of Jesus? I mean, I think most yes. of the heart of a lot of Christianity is actually, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but it's the it's the archetype or the the mythology, the legend, the the character of Jesus. And again, I didn't use mythology, you know, as a negative stance or legend as a negative way of looking at it, but it's an evolving you know, thing that, you know, people have interpreted his words differently at different times in history for different reasons. And the Bible captures a core of it, but doesn't capture all of it. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. I think um, it is helpful to differentiate um, the Jesus we have in the text, right, in the Bible, mm -hmm. uh, from exactly what you said, the ideal of Jesus or the Jesus that that points us to, that then we sort of uh, center around. And, and I would agree with Tina that, yeah, I think Jesus is seen as the center. But, of course, if we didn't have the scripture texts, we wouldn't know much, if anything, about the Jesus of history. And so we sort of need those texts to sort of set, set the stage. It's almost like uh, those things are the guide but not the point. And I think sometimes people want to make the Bible the point when they forget that the Bible is sort of a meant to be more of a tool or a guide that points us in the right way, but sometimes we confuse the sign for the thing itself. Did you guys see the article that's going around on Gandhi about how um, he he was you know he's touted as like this this great spiritual leader, but yet you know he he did some things that were he was a racist and he just did some things that were pretty um, <laughs> frowned upon. And, you know, it just makes me think that, <laughs> I know, I, I'm just waiting for the tweets. It just makes me wonder, like, we scrub our text. We scrub it so that the people that we, you know, that we want to worship, that we want to look at um, as saints, as spiritual leaders, we take all the bad away. You know, we take it all away because we don't want to look at that. We don't want to see them as human. And I just wonder how much of that happened with the Bible and with Jesus. You know, I mean, you know, there was editing. You know that only the good stories got passed on. Yes, yes. We, we talked about uh, time travel some time back, and it's a question of, you know, if you, were, if you were on site with Jesus, like, yeah, would you get some of the dirt that didn't make it into the, uh, the clean image that's been presented? Well, and it, would you share it if you came back? <laughs> well, the other thing is, I think there's multiple Jesuses in the Bible. I mean, it's not a single character with a single story and a single narrative. These are It's a collection of books. It's a collection of writings. And they're, they, pro they provide different portraits, you know, and different characters that you can, you can do some uh, common... My words are failing me. Um... Uh, you can combine them together, you know, to create this character. But there's actually, I think, some pretty differences between the various gospels. There are differences, you know, in the you know in the character even of Jesus. Um, so, Tim, do you think that's because Jesus, like us, is multifaceted, or do you think it's because everybody just saw them through their own eyes and saw what they wanted to see? Um, Describe well, it accordingly. Yeah, I think they were using them to illustrate various theological points. You know, the books were written for different audiences at different times for different, you know, purposes, which I think is actually a Peter Inns thing, too, that he really stresses, you know, um, in, I forget which one of his books. But, um, you know, Mark was writing to one crowd for one reason. Luke was writing to a different crowd for a different reason. And they both used Jesus and the things that, you know, were known about them, but they emphasized them differently. They put them in different orders. They gave them different contexts, even for some of the stories about him, to make points that they're trying to make in their book. Everyone always thinks the Bible like dropped from heaven, 
you know, as a text, and it's a complete book. It's not. It's an anthology. I yes. mean, of you know, it's a collection of books that have been put together into one book for us. I think a lot of people lose focus on that, especially in American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Oh, very much yeah. so. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a great a great point. I let my dog out. It's whining. It's just going to continue being a problem. So I will be right. No worries. No worries. <laughs> Brian, what do you um, Brian, what do you think the benefit would be to people to put the Bible as the center as opposed to putting Jesus as the center? What would be the benefit? Yeah. I think the benefit is, um, well, it can. One of the benefits can seem like uh, you have control, right? Like we have this book. And that book is our authority, and then certain people in leadership are the people who are entrusted with telling us what it means and interpreting it. And so there's a certain level of control that you feel you have if the Bible is the center, and you can draw some strict um, theological doctrinal bounds uh, and some social behavioral uh, boundaries. And so you can kind of really try to... Um, control what people believe, how they're allowed to act or behave, and so on. And it feels like you're in charge. Whereas if Jesus is the center, um, I think we're constantly presented with this figure that we are challenged by because he acts in ways that are often counter to our natural impulses. He will go and spend time with the people that we might be like, uh, you know, is that dude okay? Or is that woman all right? Maybe we should just kind of you know, pass by on the other side or, yeah. you know, not include in our group or whatever. And yet Jesus always goes that extra step um, and he pushes us in terms of violence. You know, if you're, if someone strikes you, you know, turn the other cheek. Uh, if they ask for your uh, coat, give them your cloak uh, as well. Um, if they ask for you, give to them and don't, you know, don't demand repayment. Um, so he's always challenging us, and, and we are less in control if Jesus is in the center, and that is more disconcerting for folks. So basically, if Jesus is in the center, he's kind of holding us accountable for our actions, whereas the Bible, we can hide behind instead of be I think accountable. That's right. I think that's right to a certain level. Well, I just felt like you summing up something that somebody said. <laughs> it's usually your job. <laughs> oh, well done. Well done. But I, well, I, I don't know. I think Bible is center, though. I mean, that's kind of a product of the of the Reformation. I mean, the the Bible as center is not something that was really prominent in Christian traditions uh, before you you had Martin Luther basically come along, and he needed something to be able to stick into the ground that you know can be the center post for Christianity because it does with you know the Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it drifted all over the place because you didn't have this firm mooring point you know, of which you can circle the, you know, basically you can tether a boat out and it can go for a certain degree, yep. but it can't drift too far. And I, I, my read of history and church history is that, you know, that is kind of a sort of modern development, or at least from the, you know, the 15th century. That's a great historical reminder, Tim, uh, that, you know, um, certainly earliest Christianity, of course, didn't have a Bible, that, and... Um, or what we think of as the Bible, they had, you know, um, some of the Jewish writings, which even themselves, the canon had not been um, determined uh, as Jesus is walking around. They kind of had the idea of what the Torah and the writings and the prophets were, but um, the idea of making this sort of strict canon uh, develops later in the first century for Judaism and for Christianity in the New Testament that happens even later, several hundred years after Jesus. And even then, as you note, uh, Really, I think church authority is the center, right. the pope and papal authority and all of that. Tradition and as you, authority, the magisterium. That's right. And then, exactly right, uh, the Reformation happens, and it's like, wait, what's the center now? You know, Well, it's this book. You know, We need to get back to the book. And then the advent of the printing press makes it that much more accessible, and suddenly the Bible can be in everyone's living room in their own language, which was a new thing in history not that long ago, right. in, the, in the wider scope. And so it's easy to see why that became the center. Yeah. Well, the printed press came widespread literacy. All these, all these things fed upon each other as a cycle that brought us to where we are now. But it's funny that um, I, 
I'd like to think that, you know, part of his mission was so that the people, you know, were kind of taking their religion and spirituality into their own hands, but then, you know, it seems like the people in charge always seem to find a way to abuse that power and to use it to control people, no matter what, you know. I don't know. It's like the pendulum always swings. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. And, you know, when anytime you have an institution or organized community, you need uh, certain rallying points. You know, what are the things that draw us together? And uh, I think one of the challenges for a more um, progressive uh, approach to uh, faith is that it's less top-down, less authoritative, less guilt-driven, like you need to be here every week or, you know, you need to believe X, Y, or Z. It's more, hey, we have uh, these things we value and they sort of pull us together, but it's more of a it's more of a letting go and entrusting that if people feel you know feel connected by this, if they feel like they're growing from this, they'll show up. But I don't need to twist their arm or guilt them into it. Um, but sometimes it can be harder to keep people connected that way because people feel more autonomous. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just a reality. Mm -hmm. All right, are we ready to get into it? I've been sipping darker than your. <laughs> of hell and uh, there was a recent article in uh, National Geographic I guess which noted that many evangelicals are moving away from this idea of hell and many are really making some connections that this idea of never-ending torment is largely a pagan superstition and that the biblical support that they thought was there perhaps isn't and so the question is can Christianity survive Without hell, and why do you feel people, or why, yeah, why do people feel a need for believing in in a place like hell? It keeps them from being intrinsically motivated. I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> it's it's a it's a manner of control. It's it's an easy way to discipline your children. You know, uh, right? Yeah. Teaching them about sin and and hell. I mean, it is like you know, Christian kids grow up. Yeah, you and Ogim were saying it last week. You were terrified watching certain movies that Jesus was going to come back and see you, and you weren't going to get to go on the second coming. And you know, that's that's what we did to our kids. It's it's a control thing. It's a great way to keep them in control. It's terrible in control. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> oh, I'm saying it's horrible, but it it's effective. You know, fear is effective. To a point. <laughs> to a point. Yeah. Until they grow up. <laughs> yeah, until they figure out, wait a minute. Yeah. There is no Santa Claus. <laughs> and so just for the sake of uh, discussion here, uh, does are any of us in this conversation uh, believers in the classic uh, doctrine of hell, which is the idea of eternal conscious torment? No. I'm seeing I'm seeing heads shaking, but for those tuning in later. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I, I gonna... also don't believe in any kind of afterlife, so that kind of precludes the idea of a hell. So. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Duly noted. Uh, yeah, I don't believe in a sadistic god. I, I I don't believe that you know. Yeah. Again, I like the vision of being children. And I don't. I don't sorry, my cat just entered. Um, I. I don't like the idea of a parent eternally tormenting their child. Like, why? Based Hard to on, imagine. yeah, based on a tiny lifespan. No doubt. Um, but why do you? I mean, but yet this this idea persists. And um, you know, I've been in conversations. Uh, I think the natural question that happens. Well, one defense of it is, well, God is God, and He can do whatever he wants so if you know if God sets up the rules such that any sin you commit results in never-ending torment or torture then what can, who are we to say otherwise God's set it up and he set the rules um, but again what kind of God does that Brian if he could if he could set it up any way he wanted to why would you do that unless you, mad scientist sadistic you know you're you're putting him 
in, in that vision of God, you're putting him right on the same level as like Stalin and Hitler and, you know, all these people that we think are horrible monsters, but yet we believe in a loving God that does that? That doesn't even make sense. I hear you. There's this great uh, quote that was in the National Geographic article from uh, the late uh, theologian Clark Pinnock, and he said, Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. Yeah, exactly. Which I think, you know, is exactly what you're saying. And, and I, I think... I think Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, I, th I think that line of thinking is for me what began to give me the space, because I certainly grew up believing in hell and being taught that hell is a real place that you should be afraid of, and, you know, one of the reasons for trusting in Jesus is so you don't go to hell. Um, but I think this is one of the things that made me begin to wonder, well, wait, if God is love, can we even imagine a figure of love capable of the worst moral evil that we could imagine? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I finally came to the point where I said no, but then I also investigated some of the biblical evidence um, for the idea of hell and also began to realize that some of the biblical support that I had assumed was there and had been told was there was a lot thinner than I had imagined. And do you think that has developed through interpretation? Well, I think part or of the purposely even. <laughs> well, yeah, certainly there's a uh, a control factor that's awfully uh, convenient uh, with this idea. But I do think part of the challenge is language, frankly, right? We we read the Bible in our own language, and so when we read Jesus talking about a place called hell, or we read an Old Testament or Hebrew scripture text about the hell, we don't realize that there's uh, a totally different word in the Hebrew that has no idea of perpetual torment. It's simply a place for the dead, Sheol. Uh, it's just where everyone went, the righteous and the unrighteous. There was no heaven, there was no hell. That that idea didn't, didn't even exist in, um, in Judaism at that point. Uh, I'm not sure it does now. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking about hell, uh, there's a couple of different words he's using, one of which is a physical location outside of Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley, where they would bring their trash and they would have fires burning. And so when Jesus talks about fires continually burning, as the dead would be brought out there. And so, you know, this talk of the dead and perpetual fire, well, that was actually, you know, you could just go down the street and see that. It wasn't about something that happens later necessarily. Right. Well, that was the, what, uh, Guiana was the place where they had basically, it was Jerusalem's incinerator. You know, yeah, Gehenna, that's right. But Gehenna is one way to say it, or the Hinnom Valley. Where yeah, they brought their trash there, their leftover, the dead animals, the you know things you couldn't leave laying around, basically, including criminals or people that didn't have anyone to bury them. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. So it's one of those forgotten, lost person kind of places, as opposed to a place of eternal torment. It's just one of those you are a disposable thing of society, like an animal or like a criminal, you know, and a useless and unremembered. I mean, there's a lot, I don't know, I've always found there's a lot of, like, Greek references that you start getting into when you get into Augustine, and even some of the writings that show up with Paul, there's a lot of influence uh, from Greco-Roman society and after afterlife ideas that weren't present at all in the Judeus, uh, the Judaic tradition. That's right, yeah, you can really sense that sort of platonic... Um sort of uh, material spirituality divide, this sort of dualism, um, this idea of the soul which, you know, lives on, um, certainly has some roots, um, as you said, in Greek thought and philosophy. There's um, a strain in Judaism, though, of it. I guess the Essenes, the people that were writing the Dead Sea Scrolls, were very much dualists, and they believed in a, in a uh, spiritual afterlife, but a not a bodily resurrection. That's a fair point. That's a fair point because they talked a lot in their writings about sons of light and sons of darkness, and it was either kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the one of the parables in which Jesus talks about hell is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's funny because, of course, we forget that this is a parable, you know, uh, but we want to assume he's talking about uh, some literal things. But it's this idea where this guy. Uh, 
Lazarus has this terrible life. He's poor. He's living on the you know outside the gate of this wealthy, uh, wealthy man, who's unnamed, right? Just this wealthy man, and uh, Lazarus dies, and he goes to be with God, and the rich man eventually dies, and he goes to this place called hell, um, and. Yeah, and so there, from that, you know, so much is drawn from that parable when really what Jesus is talking about is we ought to pay attention to the poor around us and we ought to not, you know, gate ourselves off if we have more than enough and forget about the people that we could, you know, uh, provide for. Uh, but instead we somehow turn it into this idea of, well, you need to believe the right things or else, and that. Well, what, one of the pleasures of heaven is watching the the uh, damned suffer eternally. That is one of the great pleasures. No, right? That, that was that was a major point for quite a while in the church. <laughs> it was. There's there's a strong Puritan strain of that, and I think uh, Jonathan Edwards says explicitly, "It will be a joy of the redeemed to see God's righteous judgment being poured out everlastingly on the damned." Oh my gosh! So you're watching a reality show. You're in heaven, you're watching a reality show of hell, and you're seeing people you know on it, and you're rejoicing and laughing and thinking that's cool? That's so they perverted. That from that parable. Wow. That was the horse text they always used for it. And that even predates Jonathan. I mean, that's a medieval idea, even. Yeah, you may be right. That may be going back to... Um... I would expect that from medieval people. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> is, that, is that sort of Dante's Inferno, or uh, what's I, the other I, one? Yeah, Dante's Inferno, Milton Paradise Lost, those are kind of the two Western, major Western yes. influences on our conception of hell. Exactly right. Sorry, I'm drawing, the by the way, I'm drawing a lot of what I'm doing. I had to rip this out of my library, and I scan read a bunch of it before this, but really good book. I'd highly recommend yeah. it. Read us the title and tell us the oh. author. Um, it is called uh, The History of Hell by uh, Alice C. Turner. I've had this for a while. This must have come out maybe in like 2000 or 19, 1995 actually was the first edition of it. But it's a, yeah, it's a history of hell. So they go through kind of all the different versions of hell and tons of artwork from Hieronymus Bosch to, you know, old sculptures. They talk about Greco-Roman concepts, Judaic and Christian traditions. Really a fascinating book. I'm going to check it out. That's excellent. Great reference. Alice Turner. Yep. Um, you know, one Tim, thing I... Go oh, ahead. Go I was ahead. just going to say, Tim, I give you so much credit. Ogan and I usually don't even read the questions. Well, I'm sorry. Ogan doesn't read the questions before the show. I, I read them, but I, I have nothing to offer. I can't believe you actually did research. That was awesome. It's not really research too much. Like I said, I read probably about 10 or 15 pages and scanned a couple of things. I, I read the book probably 15, almost 20 years ago now originally and really liked it. Because it, it draws out a lot of those things you don't realize, like the interconnections between the various ancient Near East religions and, and things like that, where it's like, oh, you know, this is this Bible verse is echoing back to this in the Epic of Gilgamesh that we have source for, and you can see the parallels in this way, and, you know, all that fun stuff. <laughs> nice. That's nice. cool. I do want to check that book out. It's cool. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, things that was uh, enlightening for me, I was on a, uh, a trip uh, to Israel-Palestine, and... We went to um, this place called, at least in ancient times, called Caesarea Philippi, and there's a well-known biblical story where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And famously, Peter says, you are the Christ. And um, Jesus says, yeah, you know, and you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. And what we learned when we um, went up to this uh, historical site at Caesarea Philippi. This is north of Galilee, a ways uh, up towards um, Syria, Lebanon. And there was uh, a cultish site for uh, the pagan god Pan. And all these cultish activities that would happen uh, part of the Pan religion. And there was this huge sort of hillside. Mm -hmm. And within it, there was a, a spot where there was a huge hole in the side of this hill. It was kind of a big rock and a river would come out of that and it was kind of this scary looking thing and that was under that was called the gates of hell or the gates of Hades mm -hmm. and so there's this physical place that they called the gates of hell and this rock above it um, and so there's 
so many things happening when Jesus says, you are my rock, and you know, on this I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against this. And when you're standing in that physical place and you make some of those connections to geography and to um, pagan sites and all of that, it just makes you realize, oh, maybe the way I read that isn't exactly right. And maybe the way we've always interpreted that was sort of ignorant of some of the um, geographical, historical realities that were happening when that story took place. And maybe Jesus was really going to build a physical church up there and he was going to make Peter do all the work. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> or, or, or you could also use that to strengthen the idea that this is all an entire metaphor given for the people at the time that made a lot of sense in a more mythological structure than something that was actually said by him at the time. You know, it, it, it makes it resonate more with the people as a, oh, okay, yes, you know. Exactly right. Because these story as opposed to a real story, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a good point because, you know, these Gospels, of course, are written uh, a generation or two later and people are a, a bit more spread out within the Roman Empire, many of them. Some diasporas happened after the destruction of the temple and they're dealing with and living among uh, people who um, are worshipping in these either Roman or Greek Eastern religions and for them to hear Jesus say, you know, the gates of Hades is not going to prevail against the movement I've started, you know, that gives people, oh, you know, yeah, we we face these people and maybe they're, you know, um, opposed to or not favorable to what we're doing, but we have this word from Jesus to sort of keep us going. But that's a totally different way of reading it than... Um, <laughs> yep. Eternal damnation. Exactly. Brian, out of curiosity, is is that the? I know there. I think there are multiple locations in the ancient world where they had, you know, gates of Hades. Was that exactly. also like had a lot of like toxic gases that came out of it? So it, like because of the volcanic activity. There's one I know of, and I don't know where it is, but that had um, volcanic gases that would come out of it. So basically, anything that went into the water died, or anything that got too close to the fumes that came out of the cave also just died. And I don't that's know if that's the one. Uh, that's a good question. This one actually did not have that. It was more the mouth of this river, but it was it was seen um, as also as the place where Baal would go to the underworld, and so he would he would descend down into the underworld through the gates of Hades, and then in the spring he would reemerge, and the water would be seen as that source of life um, okay. and fertility. And so if Baal was being favorable to them, then he would come up in the and the flow would be strong from the river coming up out of the underworld. Um, and so it didn't have that uh, death connotation. Actually, the okay. opposite, ironically. Yeah, I just heard about one that was like that somewhere, you know, in, in the Greek-Turkish area, and I don't know where it is. Yep. That'd be, I'd be interested in looking that up because I, I believe you are correct that there are um, there's more than one spot that had that moniker. Yeah, so um, this uh, evangelical author named Preston Sprinkle says, when I truly revisited the question of hell, I was kind of shocked at how little biblical support there was for the traditional view. And we've sort of talked about some of that. And yet, this idea persists and is actually pretty strongly felt in most evangelical circles, um, most reform circles that Tim and I are familiar with, um, and I'm just wondering, why do you think this idea keeps persisting? What, what's its draw? What's its pull? Um, personally, I don't think it's any more than the fact that a good story keeps getting retold. Um, I, I have two children, okay? And the one is, you know, introspective. He's a thinker. And he, he listens to everybody's stories and kind of takes it all in and then figures out reality based on it. My other one listens to the first story he's told. And I think most people are like that. And they, they it gets into their head and they believe it. And no matter what else anybody else says, it can't be true because that first story is true. And I really think that that story just gets passed along that way. And people don't question it. They don't sit there and think about, you know, what, what kind of God actually would do this, like the questions we're talking about. You know, or what it would feel like to live in eternal damnation. <laughs> like, you know, when when you think about that stuff, it's kind of like, hmm, 
you, you would question it, but I think people just, it's easy to buy into. It's, it's easier than taking accountability for your own actions to, um, you know, have, have God on this side and the devil on this side fighting over you. Just my perspective. A lot of people may believe in hell, but almost no one thinks they're going to go there. Exactly. It's useful for other people. It's never useful for me. Yeah. It's not better than you. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I think some of it is it's useful. Um, I think, but most religion for most people is like a software user license. You know, it's like click if you agree. Sure. Yep. Okay. There we go. That means I can use religion. You know, in the same way you do it when you, you know, download new software for your phone. You don't actually read the entire user agreement and forms a subscription to them. You just sign at the bottom line so you can end up, you know, using what it has. And, you know, it's a useful tool for the church, that's for sure. I mean, it keeps people scared and in the pews and gives them a reason to keep going because if you don't, perdition awaits. That's right. Those people that aren't like you get perdition as their payment, as a final comeuppance, even if you never get it to them in life. So convenient. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're right that I think uh, that analogy of the user agreement is a good one. Um, you know, we, we maybe go to church for social need um, for any number of reasons, tradition, family heritage, whatever, um, and we may just kind of unthinkingly sign on for a lot of the finer points that we don't really worry about. Um, and I think what's happening today is that people more and more are investigating those finer points, and that's creating a lot of tensions within uh, many churches and many church traditions, including this um, idea of hell. How, how, I'm just curious, though, what do you guys see out there for, I guess, evangelical churches moving away from the concept, the traditional, quote-unquote, traditional concept of hell? It's not something I'm, I mean, I know it happens occasionally to churches or, and it happens probably more than occasionally to individuals, you know, that they move away from it. But I mean, Rob Bell published his book and caught holy hell from it. No doubt. Excuse the pun. From the <laughs> well done. community, you know, and I mean, he was just, I mean, he could have said, he said all kinds of other very controversial things they didn't like, but they never rose the stink about it that they did when he questioned, and he didn't even really question, you know, the concept, the traditional concept of evangelical hell. So I, I just don't see that the evangelical church is moving away. I think there are instances of it, but I, like I said, I just don't see any mass movement or even close to that happening yet of people walking away from that idea. But don't you think that's because the people questioning it are usually silent and just walk away? Like they're not making a huge deal of it. They're just walking away. Yeah. I mean, that's a big problem in and of itself from the stats I read is that walk away is a real issue they're dealing with. I mean, shrinking memberships are just beginning to affect everybody. Yeah, but and I... I, know how, much that's I, I how much is not hell. Right, and I think I think your assessment is pretty pretty accurate that it tends to be more individuals who are, uh, both of you said maybe individuals who are kind of saying you know what I don't agree with this and I'm I'm opting out at least from a church setting that mandates it, mm -hmm. and um, I think you know the the bigger shifts in churches moving away from it that that's a slower process and takes time, um, but what I hear from people when you uh, propose this idea that hell, um, their idea of hell doesn't exist, or maybe hell at all doesn't exist, is what's the point then? <laughs> you know, they, they're like, why am I going to church? Why did Jesus die? Why are we doing any of this if there's no hell? Why do I like, have to be a good person if there's why? no hell? Well, it's so tied to the substitutionary atonement idea, which has its claws in, I think, even deeper into the psychology of, of most Christians, in, in, especially in the West, you know, that, that idea of substitutionary atonement, its keystone is the idea of hell. I mean, That's without right. hell, the substitutionary atonement, the calculus doesn't make sense anymore. It, exactly. It's a nonsensical way of even approaching that. And but, but, I mean, lock, stock, and barrel, substitutionary atonement is what everybody believes and has been taught. Yep. So I, I think, think that's right. Part parcel. Yeah, and so, yeah, If wait, if... If there's no hell, why did Jesus die? And why did God kill Jesus? If that's your yeah. view. What's the point? Yeah. And and it's you and so you really do have to reframe some of those uh, central um, 
facets of the faith, well, if the point of Jesus' life was not so that he could die to save people from the God who apparently loves everyone but also wants to send them all to hell, then what is the point of Jesus' life? And for me, it actually invites a re-look, a fresh look at Jesus' life and what was he about and what was he inviting people to and I think when you do that, you see that he is presenting us a radical model of how to live uh, as, um, as humanity in a way that cares for each person and makes space uh, and is centered on peace and forgiveness. Um, and, you know, we would do well to follow. But it's so easy to ignore all of those things if we only need Jesus because he dies and he saves us from hell. Now, but think about this. You're talking about a huge shift in consciousness. If your entire state of being is based on fear and you take away hell, which is that little loose Jenga block at the bottom, everything else comes crashing down, your fear is overwhelming you. You know, like you don't even know totally. what to do with yourself. Like you yes. have to make that change in consciousness before you pull out that Jenga block. Mm -hmm. That's well said. Uh, it opens up, though, a lot of, I, I still think substitutionary atonement is a jinga block or two lower, probably in most people's belief scale than even hell is. But, uh, yeah, because you're always going to worry that if I get my theology wrong on this, I might be going to hell. You know, how core of a principle is it? Well, it's in the Apostles' Creed, and it's, you know, it's in some core creedal statements that have been part of historical Christianity for so long this is pretty low on that totem pole. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, I think it's I think it's okay to mow my lawn on Sunday, you know. <laughs> right. You know, uh, yeah. Or do a triathlon on Sunday. Go to hell just for that one, you know. Whereas you start going, oh, I doubted the doctrine of hell, or I doubted substitutionary atonement. Those are a lot lower on that scale. Well, you know, I, I do have to say, I grew up with my mom saying, if if. If you're wrong, nothing's going to happen to me. But if I'm wrong, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that whole theory. Like. The scoundrel's last resort. <laughs> exactly. It's the old uh, um, Pascal's wager, right? Uh, yeah. You're betting. You're betting on on the best odds or the, the avoiding the worst outcome. Yes. Yeah. Basically, yeah. a race to the bottom. Whoever provides the worst torment near must for must be right. Exactly. Very, very compelling view. <laughs> Great argument. <laughs> very compelling view. Wow. Well, we are uh, approaching our hour here, but I want to um, read a couple of comments on Twitter uh, in regards to uh, what is the center of the Christian faith if it's not the Bible. And Adam has chimed in and says, tradition is the center of the Christian faith. And Jack, a uh, former guest on the show, says the center, uh, if it's not the Bible, would be our deep sense of awe in all things. I like that. So I, I like that, Jack. Well said. Uh, so thanks for folks who are tuning in. We had a few people who jumped in on the old uh, triathlon um, question, and I think most folks also wanted to avoid drowning. Uh, I think that was the, <laughs> that was the consensus. But you know what? That that totally brings everything back around because Tim, your view on the triathlon is the exact same thing as religion. <laughs> You're gonna avoid the worst possible option. <laughs> that was a Pascalian wager I made for the triathlon. Yes. Very well done, Tina. Well done. Well done. Well, hey, uh, Tim, it's been great having you with us this week. Uh, any uh, parting comments? No, it was very enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me. If you ever want me back for this again, I'd be more than happy to do it. Great, great. Tina, any uh, any parting uh, thoughts? Nope, I'm good. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, hey, thanks, friends, for tuning in to Pub Theology Live. Please connect and help spread the word about our show on social media. And remember, you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. And if you want to uh, discover if there's a pub theology conversation happening at a bar in your town, uh, please visit pubtheology.com. And once again, thanks to our sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Visit craftbeerseller.com for a location near you. And we are out. <laughs>